Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, um, my name is Charlie Banner of Keating Chambers. Um, welcome to this special edition of Have We Got Planning News For You, dedicated to the government's white paper, uh, Planning for the Future, published in the small hours of yesterday morning, uh, Thursday at one minute past midnight. Although our um, first series ended last week, we wanted to offer you some immediate insight on the white paper now, rather than wait until the second series begins in September. And to achieve this, we're hugely honoured to be joined with um, the one and only Kit Kat, uh, my very dear friend, uh, Chris Katkowski QC, who is the planning lawyer on the task force appointed by the government to draw up the proposals to now in the white paper. Um, Kit Kat, good morning. Uh, where are you calling from today? Good morning. Good morning, Charlie and all of you. I'm calling from, uh, from Sussex and um, in a very, very beautiful part of East Sussex. Nearest place to me is called Netherfield. Netherfield is in turn near to Battle and Battle is famous as the Battle of Hastings. 1066 and all that. Ah, fantastic. Well, uh, I'll ask you what you're drinking in a moment, but I should say we're doing things a little bit differently for this episode, including pre-recording this at the, the ungodly hours of 7.30 in the morning. So um, I'm assuming none of us have got gin or beers to compare today. Have you got a strong cup of coffee, Chris? Uh, yes, I have. What I have is a flat white. That's my drink of choice. I'm uh, drinking it out of my favourite mug, which is uh, the Cotopaxi mug. That's a volcano in south america that i mountain bike down on the outside obviously um i've been in cornwall as you know and i've got a drink uh, for mary uh, uh -huh. you like tarquins i certainly do in the isles of Scilly, they have the hell bay gin uh so i've got this specially for you but uh, <laughs> i won't drink it now and uh, i've got presumption uh presumption is in his holidays he's in his speedos he's got a pina colada and he's looking forward, he's looking forward to the summer. Fantastic. Oh, and, and of course, I've got a Kit Kat, and I've got the best one, it's gold. Uh, <laughs> you know they have, you know in Japan they have a wasabi, a green wasabi Kit Kat. I didn't find someone to get one for today, but uh, sadly not. Mary, not the worst. Sorry, I'm too busy laughing. Good morning to you all. Good morning. So I am actually also, I'm in Cornwall, uh, I am looking out onto Travaux's Head on the north coast. I'm not a million miles away from Newquay and um, those who've been looking at all the glossy pictures in the white paper will know that on the front cover, correct, is Tregunnel Hill, which is a Duchy of Cornwall development on the edge of Newquay. So I'm not a million miles away from that. I'm supping on my Earl Grey and... I've got that. I've probably done this the wrong way around, but uh, I've got a <laughs> chunky Kit Kat. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's one here as well. 
Uh, I'm in Lancashire, having just returned from Wales. I am on holiday. It's an early, early, early enough hour of the morning that my wife doesn't know that I'm recording this because I'd like to stay married. Um, and in honour of uh, Presumption's uh, hobbies, uh, I've got some grind coffee. <laughs> Check our website if you don't get that reference. Um, and last but not least, uh, uh, Mr. Pedalman himself, Sasha. Yep. I am Mr. Pedalman. I'm defined by my cycling. I am in Moffat, Scotland, and it is the time zone is still the same, notwithstanding Nicola Sturgeon's best efforts. <laughs> and I am currently, for my breakfast, I am drinking a lovely cup of tea, which is fabulous. Ah, see. Super. Well, yeah, like everybody else, I've got my Kit Kat there, which I couldn't quite resist opening before we started because it's <laughs> yeah, I'm so hungry. And I couldn't find any coffee from the East Riding of Yorkshire, but I was able to find some coffee from Yorkshire in any event, which is a nod to, to, to Paul and uh, my, my honorary um, adoptive um, uh, county, of, uh, county of choice uh, in, in this industry. Um, so now, can I just ask, have, have you changed your shirt in the last 400 miles? <laughs> I actually, lucky enough, I got five shirts from the Samaritans, and I'll, you'll be pleased to know I've done something which I haven't done since my student days, and I've been washing every night in a basin. My <laughs> shirt, <laughs> not me. So I think, there's, I think you... there's some irony in a planning silk having four shirts given to him by the Samaritans. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure you used the I've got five versions of this shirt with your other shirt that you always wore. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Not quite, I believe you a second time. <laughs> wonder. Um, now, we won't be following the usual structure in this special edition. Um, uh, we're going to do it slightly differently. Um, we're going to focus exclusively on the white paper without our usual um, slots. Um, and KitKat's going to kick off with an overview of, of how the process of coming up with the proposals worked. And then what we'll do is we'll look at, in turn, the proposals first with local plans, um, then the infrastructure levy, um, then building beautiful and design quality, um, and lastly, some of the other proposals. And for each topic, um, Kit is going to start off by explaining the key fundamental changes proposed, some of the thinking behind them, and then um, the rest of us will chip in with some questions and comments. So, uh, without further ado, uh, Kit Kat, over to you. Um, tell us how, how we got to where we got to yesterday. Okay, great. Well, thanks very much indeed, and it's very good of you to invite me onto your excellent show. I'm a big fan, usually watch it on YouTube. Um, so thank you very much indeed. And I'm sure that your viewing numbers will crash um, <laughs> as me onto this show. Anyway, never fear. So the white paper. Um, well, I was very, very, there it is. Chris, you know, I can see you're completely on the, on the ball here. Well done. Um, so the white paper, I was very, very, privileged indeed to be involved in this. As you know from the Secretary of State's forward, there was a small group of, well, in my case, in inverted commas, experts in all the other, in all the other cases, very well deserved um, to describe them in that way. Um, but it's important for me to point out, I think, that it wasn't simply uh, the people name-checked in the Secretary of State's forward. We had huge, huge input from some absolutely excellent civil servants um, at the department. Uh, also from the Treasury as well, and continuous representation from um, number 10 too. And um, the process worked in, in this way. I mean, I was asked, um, I was called at home and asked whether or not I would be interested in participating. 
uh, someone who's been doing this job for quite a few years. Um, it, and throughout those years, thought to myself, well, this isn't really quite right in the planning system and that needs changing. Uh, to be honest, I jumped to the chance of being involved because it gave me an opportunity to actually try to make a difference. Um, and, you know, I'd like to say that if, if you think any of the things in the white paper are any good, then perhaps there's something to do with me. And to the extent you think any of them are rubbish, then I'll be able to blame someone else for them. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a very collegiate effort. In fact, the way it worked was that we, we met each week um, in a format like this by video. Um, in between each weekly session, there were no end of emails uh, between the members of the group. And um, at, each, at each Friday session, as it turned out, um, each person in the group was tasked with a particular area to discuss and to set out proposals for reform. And we were disciplined, if you like, to um, write our ideas um, in as crisp a manner as possible. And anyone who knows me knows that suits me very well. That suited me very well. So we each week presented our ideas to the rest of the group. And then there was a very, very, very intense um, taking, taking to pieces, really, the ideas to see whether or not they stood up to analysis, challenges from all the other members of the group, and indeed from the excellent civil servants that we had involved in the process. And then you went away, in effect, and changed your ideas or modified your ideas to fit in with a commentary and feedback. And this process went on and on. There were special sessions where your own subject, I mean, I had, I had two areas, if you like, in the white paper, and what's become the white paper, where your own subject was then discussed by you and the expert civil servants from the department. And that was a very, very interesting process indeed. I mean, the calibre of the people in the department and the treasury uh, and number 10, very, very impressive indeed. And so um, then the um, paper was uh, written drawing together all of our ideas. Um, there are what I call wraparound paragraphs and passages in the white paper. So you'll see that there are primary proposals throughout the white paper. And then wrapped around those proposals are, oh, we could be even more radical or we could be a bit less radical. So there are options, if you like, which have been set out. The mainstay of the paper though, the white paper is found in those key um, primary proposals that are set out um, by, the, by, the, uh, by the government. Um, so as you'll know, there's a 12 week consultation and um, I spent most of yesterday <laughs> shouting at the radio, uh, <laughs> one person after another, slagging the white paper off, usually for things which aren't in the white paper. I mean, I found myself yesterday <laughs> Very often saying, well, if that was in the white paper, I'd be with you thinking that was an absolutely terrible idea. Uh, but most of the things that we, we've been criticised for are ideas which aren't even in there. Um, a couple of the couple of the points made yesterday by repeatedly by commentators really sort of wound me up, but I, I suspect I should get used to this for the next sort of 12 weeks. Uh, one so, in particular, the first thing. Chris, yeah. Chris they, the white paper also asked a series of questions. The first of which is... What three words do you most associate with the planning system in England? I'm yeah. really intrigued in the light of your experience to know what your three words are. I can't show you mine because the middle one is, is not suitable for pre-watershed. <laughs> it's a great question, isn't it? And I, I'd, I'd like to say that 
I'd like to claim that, um, that you know, the, the experts and in inverted commas, in my case, sort of came up with these questions, including the first question. But no, I mean, the, the questions in particular, the first question came from the, came from the civil servants and the departments. And I, I think that first question is actually smashing. So my three words would be delay, obstruction, confusion. Um, but whenever I've thought about this, I've come up with three different, three different words, but none of them are complementary. I mean, I think, you know, in fairness, the existence, the existing system in inverted commas does need a good, good sort out really. And that's what we've tried to do in the white paper. Um, and hopefully we'll get a fair reading. I mean, as I say yesterday, I was getting myself more and more wound up as I listened to people saying, for example, that this is all about building the slums of the future, when a hugely, hugely important theme in the paper is building beautiful and making sure that people have got homes that they can actually be proud of um, and not in any way sort of living in shabby conditions. Um, so I hope it gets a fair reading. I'm, obviously it's going to be controversial. There are an awful lot of um, vested interests out there that are very, very concerned indeed to protect their patch. Uh, but I would ask, you know, all your viewers, everyone in the industry who's interested in this subject because it affects all of us, just to give the paper a fair reading, please, and take it from there. So that's just a very, very brief overview of the process uh, that, that has led to the white paper. I don't know whether you want to ask me any questions about any of that or whether you'd like me to just... I've got one, Chris. I mean, we'll, we'll come back at the end, perhaps, to um, the delivery of, of these um, <coughs> reforms mm. and how long it will uh, take. But um, plainly, there's going to be the, the consultation. The government's going to have to think about the consultation. Mm. And then if it decides it wants to press on, it's going to have to uh, prepare some legislation, etc. Um, will there be a role for the task force going forward in that, in that ongoing process? That is unknown um, in the sense that, uh, to be straightforward about this the task force has you know done its bit if you like and the white paper's been released um, i certainly hope that there will be some role for um for us moving forward um to be again very straightforward and honest about this uh, i've offered my services so to speak because i'd be fascinated to be involved in the future particularly when it comes to looking at the legislation and the detail which would be very very important indeed to actually make these ideas work so i know that all of my colleagues on the task force would be would love to be involved in um helping mm. as best as we can to um to bring these proposals into into force in due course but no the the the, the position is you know officially if you like the task force has done its bit um and we you know we're out, we're here, sort of, if, if anyone would like to call upon our services again, I'm sure we'd all be very, very happy to be involved. Fantastic. Well, let's, um, let's move on. I mean, to can, I, can I just ask yeah, a question before we deep dive into it? Kit Kat, from your involvement, is it your sense that there is a real commitment to change at the highest mm. level? Good question. Yes, yes, uh, yes, indeed. And you'll see that the, the white paper is, is, is not only introduced by this, by our Secretary of State, so to speak, in, in, in our world, in the planning world, but it's also um, the first forward is written by the Prime Minister. Um, the task force, indeed, so well done, Charlie, you're written with the Prime Minister is legendary. Um, there was a time in the past when you were often mistaken for Tony Blair in your younger years. That was, um, that was very, very interesting. A very interesting. Can, you, can I just reference the Prime yes. Minister's forward? Because the Prime Minister describes um, radical reform and he says uh, that it will make it harder for developers 
to dodge their obligations to improve infrastructure and open, uh, opens up house building to more than just current, the current handful of massive corporations. Mm. It seemed to me that it was a little h- harsh, actually, to describe developers as simply people who are dodging their obligations to improve infrastructure. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you, couldn't, you wouldn't really expect me to be able to comment on the Prime Minister's forward, <laughs> which isn't the work of the task force. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, he's we're just... Talk, we're, we're talking about infrastructure in a... In yeah, a little, we will, but, we will, but, but I thought... But, but, but certainly one of, the, one of the things when we talk about infrastructure, sorry, Chris, when we, when we talk about infrastructure a little bit later on, one of the themes, one of the things that we were trying to deal with is to try to make the system simpler so that there isn't the ability for what's perceived certainly by many members of the public is the ability for through negotiation for things to be watered down over time. So we'll come to that slightly later on. But uh, but in answer to Sasha's question and spinning off to you, Mary, as well. Um, yes, these the what's actually in the white paper, as I understand it, um, what's in the white paper is indeed backed um, at the highest levels. Um, there's a real commitment to this, as I understand it. Um, yeah, Chris. Sorry, I, I. Well, it just. I, I understand what he's saying. He's also saying the system doesn't work. I agree with Mary. I don't think uh, he can have any understanding about how much landowners and developers do contribute to infrastructure. But my key question is, just like Sasha, do they understand intergenerational inequality in the housing market? Do you sense they understand that? Because that is the one dominant thing in our society that planning touches. Yes, I, I do. I mean, I certainly, I was very, very impressed indeed, if you might say, if I might say, by the, by the understanding actually that's shown throughout this process, the issues that we all deal with on behalf of our clients on a, on a daily basis. So yeah, it was very, very impressive indeed, Chris, uh, is, is my answer to your question. So yes, the things that you would, the things, that, the likes of you, me, Charlie, etc., all of us on this, all of us on your show here, um, the things that we would very much want our politicians and our civil servants to to understand and have a grasp of, they certainly have. That's that's my take anyway from it, from the process. It was a fascinating process. It really, really was. Yeah. One, just to sort of cap this section off before we move to the local plans, one difference seems to be between these proposals and, and what's gone in the past is it's wholesale reform rather yeah. than uh, yeah. incremental bolt-ons to sure. uh, an ageing uh, wagon. Uh, and that seems to be an advantage because it's, t- it's an opportunity to uh, sort of tear up the textbook and start yeah. again. I mean, I've been involved in two similar processes in the past. I was involved in the local plan expert group led by John Rhodes, my dear friend, and also in the, and Bridget Rosewell's um, review of planning inquiries. Um, lovely Bridget. So in both of those cases, um, we, we weren't really able to discuss primary legislation. So my first question when I got involved in this, uh, and the first topic that we discussed it happened to be my topic, so to speak, in this process. Uh, my first question was, well, are we talking about a new planning act? Are we talking about primary legislation? Because if you want to really change the system, you're not going to be able to do it by just tinkering with planning policies. You're not going to be able to do it by just tinkering with subordinate legislation, statutory instruments. You'll need a new planning act. Mm-hmm. And so when, when it came to discussing local plans, for example, you know, 
big point. Can we actually approach this on the basis of saying we can absolutely wipe the slate clean? Every statute, and there are many, many of them, it isn't just all in the 2004 Act. Can we wipe all of this legislation out, just push it to one side and start again and build a local plan system from scratch with brand new primary legislation? Answer, yes, yes, you can. So, you know, that's, that's what potentially potentially makes this a very, very interesting and, you know, the likes of us in this world, exciting set of proposals. So, so tell us more about the local plan proposal, because that's really the, the centrepiece, it seems to me, of, of, of the white paper on which so much turns. So, yeah. um, Chris, do you want to spend a few minutes just uh, perhaps explaining to sure. you, may, not ha- may perhaps not have read the full white paper yet, um, yeah. explain the key proposals um, as you see them and the thinking behind them, and then we can have a chat around that. Sure. Well, I think on the local plan side, you're right. I mean, the local plan part of the white paper is, is you know, absolutely fundamental to the, the whole structure of the white paper. And to be honest, it was, a, to my mind, um, it's very much a sort of back to our roots version of local plans, where local plans are actually meant to be, wait for it, plans with maps and things marked on maps, which mean something, and not hundreds of pages of well, it depends whether you... Words, words. And oh. Yes, to say words. Words, words no. hurdles, tripwires. Um, and so fundamentally, um, the proposals in relation to local plans would strip local plans right back to um, a process in which there's a map, there's a key, and there's text. Um, I'm sure that you've all seen it, but to me, a very, very important part of the proposals is that local plans will not contain reams of development management policies. Um, we are going to have a system, if the white paper proposals are brought in through legislation, we're going to have a system where development management policies are found in the national planning policy framework. We won't have a situation where every local plan has its own go um, in relation to you know, 101 at least. Um, topics. So we, a future local plan would be a map or a series of maps and on that map or series of maps the entirety of each local planning authority's area and by the way there could be joint plans, local plans, there can be mayoral strategic plans but the entirety of the, of the area covered by that local plan will fall within one of three different forms of, my word, by the way, annotations, um, to try to find a new way of talking about allocations and designations. We'll have one or other of the three annotations. Um, And these types, as you would have seen from the white paper, first is, um, is to say that these parts of our area are growth areas, And in growth areas, um, the idea is that these are suitable for substantial developments. These are the big ticket items. Mm. Um, And if anyone wants to know what substantial means, I'd say just get your dictionary out. But in any event, um, in the white paper, you will see uh, that the idea, of course, is that there would be a definition of these terms expressed through national planning policy. So we will have, if you like, a guidebook, which would tell us what all these things mean. And in the growth areas, um, which, are, which are allocated, annotated for substantial development, um, the plan itself, through um, its markings on the map and through um, the key to the map or maps and through the text that would go with the aforesaid, 
will actually specify uses which are seen as being appropriate in those growth areas. And these uses can be, you know, many and broad and wide ranging, or they could be few. It all depends on how big or how small the area is. I mean, these areas could be large sites. These areas could be a major part of a local authority's um, jurisdiction. So from the small to the medium to the large. But the key thing about growth areas is, and here's the magic, if you like, in the proposals, um, that upon the adoption of the plan, the plan itself will grant outline planning permission for those uses which are specified in each of these growth areas which have been designated, annotated in your in your new style local plan. The local plan itself, through its text, um, associated with the key and then back to the map, will define whatever parameters are seen as relevant for that outline consent. So height parameters, for example, density, scale, as few or as many of these parameters are seen as relevant for the growth area in question. Um, the detail, your detail consent, I mean, the, the notion of an outline planning commission is obviously very well known to all of us and to all, all the viewers, everyone will understand what an outline planning commission is. So the idea is there, let's stick to what we, what we know. Let's stick to the idea of what we know. So in a growth area, you get your outline planning commission with the plan, with the adoption of the plan. And then the detail of that, well, there are various different ways in which um, the detail can be signed off. And I'll come to some of that in a, in a, in a few minutes time. Um, the second form of annotation would be renewal areas. These are seen as suitable for development. Uh, note the difference between the two concepts, one suitable for substantial development, the other suitable for development. Uh, so renewal areas uh, will carry with them in the primary version of the proposals, uh, not an automatic planning permission. That's not gonna happen for renewal areas in the primary version of the proposals but a strengthened version of what we all know as section 38 subsection 6, a statutory presumption in favour of the uses which have been noted as appropriate in these renewal areas. And certainly we have in mind, um, and exact formulations haven't made their way into white paper, but we have in mind making it, um, raising the bar in relation to the, raising the bar in relation to the development plan so that if you want to do something which isn't actually in the in the new style local plan you will have a tougher test to uh, a higher hurdle to surmount than the one which is found in section 38 subsection 6 at the moment um, so a strengthened statutory presumption which would mean that if you're in a renewal area you have these uses which are marked out as appropriate in the renewal area you haven't got an automatic planning permission but when you make your planning application there will be a strengthened statutory presumption which would mean that there would have to be a very, very good reason indeed for the permission to be refused if you're applying for something which is marked out as appropriate in that renewal area. Um, and we very, very much see um, through um, the renewal area um, designation, we very, very much see a role for um, permitted development rights for what in my language would be described as pattern book development, um, where at a local level, and even in some respects at a national level, um, design codes can be set. Um, and if these, it suggests it can be enshrined in permitted development rights. So local people have the opportunity to play a part in deciding what they would like development to look like in their area. Uh, these are enshrined in pattern books. If you as an applicant 
pick up on these pattern books and use the standards which are set out in that pattern book, uh, then you would have a permitted development right to just get on and, and build, um, subject obviously to various prior approval matters. And the final, the final and the third um, area type um, for a new style local plan would be protected areas. So these are all the things that we, we we're very, very familiar with indeed with uh, both heritage designations, the Green Belt, AONBs, national parks, whatever it might be, whatever it might be. Chris is um, showing something to me there. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> so whatever it might be that, um, that, that justifies uh, protection uh, will um, fall within uh, this, third, this third type of area. Um, as for what on earth local authorities are meant to do when it comes to deciding how much or how little of their area should be a growth area, a renewal area, a protected area. Um, the, there, as you know, there's a proposal in relation to housing for there to be um, a binding new national standard methodology figure given by national government to each authority. Um, and there are two Two important things about this suggestion. Suggestion number one is, as I've just said, binding. So without the opportunity for anyone to say you should overshoot it or undershoot it, this is the figure. And nationally, the total will add up to the 300,000 or whatever is the decided national number. It's currently 300,000 per annum, as you know. Um, and then secondly, um, in this new national standard methodology, in the, in the methodology that's spoken about in the white paper, when it comes to allocating to each local authority area a number of homes, the environmental constraints of that area will be taken into account. This is new. This is new in the standard, in, in the ideas of the standard methodology. So the number will actually take into account the ability of the area in question to actually meet what otherwise would be its housing requirement. That would all be built into the process is the suggestion in the market. So you wouldn't have the policy on, policy off thing afterwards, that would no. be baked in. It's yeah. all baked in, it's all baked in. So it's an incredible, obviously there's lots of detail which will have to come to underpin this, mm. but the, the idea is, I think it's a pretty radical idea really. Um, and that way there would be a starting point, certainly for housing development, there'd be a, a binding starting point for the task that faces a local authority in drawing out one of these plans. Um, Ideally, under the white paper, as you know from the white paper, ideally running alongside local plans would be, if you like, twin tracks. And what we'd really like to achieve is for this to be in, as part of the local plan, would be local design codes and guides um, to enable um, there to be certainty as to the form of development which would be seen as acceptable in the area in question. Um, plans would be tested against a new single sustainable development test. I mean, we all know from the framework and from previous versions of the framework and indeed from national policy before the first framework, we all know what sustainable development means. It's become a uh, you know, very, very well-known part of our planning system. So a new sustainable development test against which these local plans would be um, assessed. Um, so soundness goes, single test replaces soundness. Uh, sustainability appraisals out a new simplified version uh, in which actually looks at outcomes rather than process. 
Mm -hmm. um, thank heavens, some of us would say. <laughs> no more of those hundreds and hundreds of pages of um, colours, boxes with ticks and crosses in them. One actually has a new simplified streamlined system in which one actually grapples with the environmental consequences of what it is that you're proposing in your plan in simple language that everyone can understand, which actually gets the points which need to be discussed. Um, duty to cooperate, out. I mean, does anyone actually think the DTC works? Of course it doesn't. Um, and we've certainly, and certainly floated in the um, white paper is the idea of um, easier, easier to understand and operate deliverability tests uh, for plan making authorities. Um, and in parallel with um, making a plan, obviously there would need to be attention paid to the infrastructure requirements, which would be part and parcel of each local plan. So just briefly in terms of process, um, there would be a statutory duty on local authorities to make local plans. Uh, there would be statutory time limits for that process, 30 months from beginning to end, so two and a half years. Um, and that process is broken down into uh, various stages. Uh, and very, very importantly, the first stage, six months, a call for sites and areas to be put forward for either growth, renewal or protection, with best-in-class engagement and involvement of the public. So for those of us who listened to commentary yesterday, which was saying, well, these proposals are taking local democracy out of the system, denying local authorities and local people a say and control. Absolute nonsense. Um, this whole idea of this is to give the public and to give local authorities a far bigger decisive role in making local plans at a time when people's views can actually count, can actually matter, not late on in the process when they're complaining or are upset about something where the dial's already been cast. So it's very, very important indeed that this first stage is fundamentally based on best-in-class public engagement and involvement in drawing up ideas for the plan. And there's a 12-month period uh, which is given to local authorities to actually draw up their plans. The idea is that during this 12 months, uh, we certainly envisaged that there would be the ability to keep going back for more public engagement and involvement. So it won't just be a process which is behind closed doors. Um, then the third stage is a six-week period during which the plan is submitted to the Secretary of State for examination. Um, and it comes, it, it is accompanied not by endless reams of it, of the evidence base that we're all familiar with in making local plans in the current system, but it's it goes alongside the local plan. There will be a statement of reasons in which the local authority explains why. What's the justification for these growth areas, for these renewal areas, for these protected areas? What's the justification for them? That's what will go with the plan when it's submitted to the Secretary of State. And alongside that, there's publicity. There's a six-week period given for people to weigh in with their comments. And the idea is that when it comes to people making representations about the plan, uh, they will be required to explain what should be changed and why should the change be made. And that explanation of why should the change be made will play an important role in the plan making system as we see in just a very few moments time. There's a nine month period for an examination process um, by an inspector and um, 
the inspector will be able to make binding changes to the plan to make sure it satisfies the sustainable development test. Um, and the inspector's report uh, will be able to simply take where the inspector agrees, can simply take the reasons given by the local authority justifying its plan as the inspector's reasons, where the inspector suggested a change because the inspector thinks that something that someone has put forward makes sense, then the inspector will be able to simply take the reasons given by that person who has made those representations and put those reasons forward as the inspector's reasons for the changes. So a, a simplified version of report writing at the end of this, and then very finally, fifth stage, a six week period of time, um, during which the local plan is finalised, it's mapped text and, um, and uh, key uh, is got into Apple Pie order, published, comes into force. Um, there will be transitional provisions, of course, um, because, you know, a lot of local authorities are indeed working on their local plans now. And um, the, the government certainly, as I understand it, doesn't want local authorities to down tools and wait for this new system. So um, the idea would be um, that um, for those who have adopted a local plan within the previous three years, um, they would be given 42 months to do this uh, process rather than 30 months, so an extra year. Um, or where a plan has been submitted for examination, um, then they have 42 months um, from the latest of um, the most recent plan or, or legislation coming into force. So an extra 12 months, in other words, if your plan's been submitted for examination. So that in a nutshell is an overview, if you can have an overview in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the key proposals which are part and parcel of the, uh, which are all part and parcel of the um, local plan part of the white paper. So basically, getting this thing back to a map-based process and um, getting rid of all sorts of things which get in the way of making a good local plan is how I would describe this in a few words. Thanks, because that was an extremely helpful um, outline. Uh, can I just try and um, use an example, a very, very simple, possibly oversimple, and do say a so example to sort of flesh out how it works. You've got, let's say, a, a, imagine a, a town somewhere, a city or, or town in the southeast. Of, uh, of England for the sake of argument that um, and it's looking at how its growth under its local plan for the next period it's got its requirement figures there's no debate about how much and I'll use housing because we're yeah. more familiar with that than anything else um, it's got its figure um, and let's say it, it obviously needs to execute that figure through planning for enough of that housing in either growth areas or renewal areas or most likely a combination of the two um, would the growth areas, would there be different annotations for appropriate uses in each individual growth area? Would yes, certainly, absolutely, 100%, 100%, 100%. Yeah, and you, could have, you could have for a growth area, you could have all sorts of uses, yeah. because remember, this is a process in which, you know, there would be, in effect, a series of outline planning permissions given for all the various uses which are noted um, for that yeah. particular growth area, or you could just decide that a growth area, which might be a large site, is only appropriate for one or two uses. Yes, I was going to come on to kind of mix and fade. So they, they have um, so they have to kind of plan for their numbers. And presumably they then, at that first stage of public inv involvement, they throw it out there saying, how do you think, you know, 
where should we meet these uh, this number and how, and then that leads to the growth areas and renewal areas. And then once they've got the, the a, say, take a particular um, growth area, which might be a sort of urban extension for the sake of argument, a large urban extension, um, how would things such as, if, imagine if it was a mixed use, so there's, let's say, also a large amount of employment in there too, for the sake of yeah. argument. Um, debates about where within that growth area the employment should be as opposed to the housing or the phasing and, and the sort of the, the, the synergies. Is that all then done at the reserve matters stage after the plan or is that baked into the plan? Well, the plan itself will have its various uses, which it sees as being appropriate for the area in question. You get your outline planning permission for those with your various parameters. It's then left to the, it's then left to the market to pick up which parts of that growth area they want to take forward in what way under right. the parent outline planning permission that's already been granted and the idea in the system you'll know on housing that one of the proposals is that we get rid of the five-year housing land supply test because the idea is that plans having been given a number to meet should meet that number and again as part of the legislation every plan would have to be renewed every five years would have to be reviewed and renewed every five years so there would be this continuous, if you like, um, assessment of how well the plan is performing against what it's meant to be doing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it would be, I mean, I certainly see this as a very, very flexible system indeed, um, where um, depending on how many or how few uses are actually uh, marked out as being appropriate for the growth area in question or the renewal area in question, um, the market will have a huge freedom to actually bring forward what it regards as being appropriate in market terms in in the, in each of those particular areas. So, so it's a very, very flexible system. Yeah, less prescriptive and more for the market. Yeah. Chris, I think you had a question, then Paul, and then uh, Mayor Shastasha, I'm sure we'll have questions too. Yeah. yeah, so Chris, thank you very much. Uh, really useful overview and uh, a nice simplified system, which isn't the zoning they have in Australia. It's a very English form of zoning with the growth areas and things. So I think it's a system we, we can all instantly recognize. My question though is, if I'm honest, I don't see any real change at the absolute core of this. So proposal four is um, a standard method housing requirement, which we have. And then it says the housing requirement would factor in land constraints and opportunities for more effective use of land. Now, 11B, which is my bet noir, as far as the current MPPF is concerned, says exactly the same. Objectively assess need, and then, um, but you can, you can reduce that, Bromley, you can reduce that for the application of policies in the framework that protect areas. So I have to say, I just don't see any change. What I do see is a change in Bromley's number. So Bromley have just adopted a plan with 641 houses a year. They got away with that before the new London plan came in. The new figure, wait for it, the new figure, two and a half thousand a year. Now they won't touch their green belt and it sounds like the standard method will allow them not to touch their green belt because you're allowed to take constraints in. But so my question is, where's the change? Okay, fine. I'll, I'll take those points in order. 
I knew, Chris, as soon as you got in, involved in, the, in the, the, the debate that would be on to housing numbers. Yeah, I'm, the John, I'm the John Motson of housing numbers. <laughs> What's the words would be housing and supply, presumably. <laughs> if I take the points, first of all, this, um, I very much, um, it's a personal view on, on my part, but um, I don't really see this as a system of zoning in the sense that zoning is, is used in, in other countries in, in the world. Um, so this is indeed very much, um, I think, um, a version of our current system, but quite, I would say, quite radically changed. But it isn't zoning as you find in, in other parts of the world, I don't think. Um, as for what's, 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 what's different in the standard methodology that's spoken about in the white paper, well, the difference is that at the moment, um, if you'll forgive me, the, the way the system works is that uh, there is a number which is derived from the standard methodology. In terms of plan making, you can argue for that number to be high, you can argue for that number to be lower. Obviously, it's said that you should only do that exceptionally, particularly if you're seeking to lower the number. Then, as you, as we all know, in the national planning policy framework, uh, a local authority making a plan can say, "Well, there's my number. Uh, I'm not really arguing if it it to be higher or lower, but I'm a very constrained. I've got a very constrained area indeed, and I just can't do this. And so, someone else is going to have to do this because well, I can't do this. Well, the, the big change in the standard methodology that's spoken about in the white paper is that that decision." as to how to balance all these various issues would be made at a national level for each authority. It would not be left to each authority to say, oh, well, here's our case. Here's how we should, here's how we see it working. That's the big, big difference. And I have to say this, this idea, if I might say, because I spoke earlier on about this actually collaboration between the, in my case, in inverted commas, experts and um, the key civil servants um, in the department and, and number 11 and number 10. And this idea of introducing into the standard methodology um, environmental constraints um, came from a very, very, very senior civil servant at, uh, at the department. And I personally think it's a very, very interesting idea indeed um, because of what it would actually do, because of obviously all of this is about trying to get on and make local plans, make good local plans that are effective. And if you remove this debate from plan making, you can actually crack on, I think, much, much better. So there's the fundamental... Is it, my, just, just, just very quickly, Mary, is it that the government will tell Bromley what their figure is? Is that it? It is. It is. Yes, it That's is, true. Chris. So Bromley will not be able to uh, wheedle out of it. However, can I just continue on this? So the lobbying as between Bromley, to use them as an example, and government um, would be potentially immense. And mm. how is it? I mean, it, this is a radical change because we, we had government telling us via the Southeast plan and all those regional spatial strategies what the numbers were. Then government said, no, uh, and it was a Tory government and said, oh, well, people don't like that. They don't like big government telling them what to do. So in fact, we're taking a step back and we're going back to big government telling us what, what the numbers are and big government and the, and the civil servants deciding where the balance lies in all of these areas. Taking on board the ability of each authority's area to actually meet, meet their numbers and redistributing numbers accordingly. So you might and find one, one authority is very constrained indeed. 
mean, my, during the discussions, my favourite examples were to contrast an area which is a national park, what do you do there, um, with an area which is, you know, uh, uh, a city or a town, with masses of brownfield land, very few constraints indeed. You know, you can, so you can see the two ends of the, the two ends of the equation. So there has but to be something. Chris, Chris, before you get to being able to conduct or, or, or plan a local plan, you, you need to have this number. There must be surely some um, process that government, central government is going to go through uh, in order to identify what the number should be in the various areas. How, where's there any discussion about that in the white paper? There isn't a discussion about, about that in the white paper in the sense of, you know, here's the detail as to how it would be done. The white paper is operating at the level of saying, this is the this is the big idea, if you like. What do you think about that? Um, and that's obviously what the government is asking people to comment on. Um, there's no doubt at all that for um, some parts of the white paper, um, for those to be introduced via legislation, new policy, and so on, there's a lot of work which will need to be put into the detail to ensure the delivery of these ideas. Um, this is a big ideas about big things paper, um, and that's to me the. Mm to be honest, the beauty of it, because it isn't just a paper that's obsessed about fiddling around with little peripheral details. It's a white paper which is saying, let's rethink. Let's actually, you know, work out how to do, do a better job. Um, but certainly there would need to be a lot of, lot of, um, lot of detail, uh, Chris and Mary. But the whole idea is, yes, um, in relation to housing development, uh, we would have a system under the white paper's ideas in which local authorities would be given a number and that number would be absolutely binding and they would have to meet that through their local plans. But Chris, okay. sorry, can I just, just dive in momentarily? I mean, it strikes me that a lot of these ideas, as you rightly said at the very start, are ideas that we started with when I started in practice back in 1991, um, i.e. local authorities get their figures, so no messing about in terms of arguing about OANs. Mm. Um, that the policies are really taken from the PPGs and it's, it's comparatively straightforward and that really what you're focused upon is how you divvy up the land requirements within a given area and that the politicians locally can blame the politicians higher up in terms of the figures. So I agree with Mary in terms of the transparency, but that lack of transparency actually worked back in 1991 because authorities didn't spend six months arguing about, about their OAN. Mm. I, I've got a couple of points. Um, the first of which is, that the blame is placed upon the planning system in this document, I think that's grossly unfair. I think the blame from my practice has been uh, piecemeal reforms by all shades of government over the last 30 years, which have changed that very simple system that we had a long time ago, and the introduction of the overview of SEAs and habitats regs and viability assessments and mm -hmm. expecting local plans to do more than they can. Um, but the big point that I've got from all this, well, two big points, Firstly, resources. How on earth do we get to the point where authorities are going to be, in effect, doing local plans with parameters which will comprise de facto outline consents? When mm. I'm dealing with local plan planning authorities with skeletal staff of people who are overworked, demoralised, and don't have the, the internal um, uh, resources to be able to do the job that they're asked to do now, um, and the, the second big point I've got is a lot of these changes we could do tomorrow by issuing another PPG. We could change the soundness test tomorrow. We could give authorities a figure tomorrow. We could do a lot of this without primary legislation. Um, do, do we need to be as radical as ripping up the, the rule book and starting again? Okay, right. There are three, three points in all of that. And uh, if I just take them in turn, 
Gosh, I mean, this is a very interesting experience, by the way, for a QC to be cross-examined. <laughs> <laughs> now I realise realize what nasty people we are and how horrible it is being. <laughs> so my apologies to all those witnesses I've pressed in the past. You know, now I know what it feels like. Um, the, the planning system, Paul, is that, is that accumulation of accretion that we've had over the years. So when the planning system is criticised in the white paper, that planning system is indeed the product of many hands tinkering over many years, fiddling around and not actually thinking, well, how can we do this better from scratch? So, yeah, there is an attack on the planning system in, in, in the paper. Um, and that's the whole reason why um, the big, big, big point in this is to think about a new planning act, which would get rid of everything that we've got in relation to plan making and start again. So a new planning system, certainly for making local plans anyway. I say a new planning act and it may very well be legislation, which is part of a recovery act uh, because of the pandemic. Um, as for resources, no, very, 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 very interesting and important question. Uh, it's a matter which we did indeed debate as the task force um, with the um, civil servants. Um, there are various thoughts and ideas which, which aren't in the white paper, but which will, I'm sure, be resuscitated, revived, looked at again as we work out the detail or as the detail is worked out. So, for example, one idea in relation to making local plans is that given that, uh, if you are a um, site owner, a promoter, a developer, someone who has a site or an area which you potentially would like to have um, included in a growth area, you, and that's in that initial first period of time, remember the six months, the call for site areas, you put forward your site area. One idea would be that you actually pay a fee to the local authority because in effect, you're applying for outline planning permission through the plan. Wow. And it may very well be that, you know, by handling these fees in that way, you could actually provide a lot of funding to local authorities. They'd probably end up with more money than they actually need because, of course, there'll be many more people putting forward their sites and actually make it into the, into the final version of the plan. So that was one of the ideas that was discussed and isn't in the white paper because um, there, will be a, there will be a need to have a whole system of detail um, which enable bringing forward this, um, these ideas. And it's a very, very good point. It has been thought about. Um, and certainly when I looked at this, I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, you're going to have, if you're going to have outline planning permissions, then why not have a system of fees being paid by the promoters of yeah. those who put sites forward? I, I, I can see that that's a, that's a very common, good common sense point of view. Can I just explore you know. a little bit more with you, this concept of when the plan is adopted, uh, effectively an outline permission is granted? Supposing uh, I, I have a, a scenario where I've got a number of um, landowners and the council in particular has identified uh, with those landowners um, a new area, either for a large urban extension or indeed for a new, um, a new garden village or a new settlement, to, to use the mm. jargon. The concept that an outline planning permission is granted upon adoption and that, mm. it, um, and that it is for the forward planners to identify all the key elements of infrastructure that you would need. Um, would you imagine requirements for master planning being, for example, spelt out in, in the plan or, or are you envisaging 
um, that you get your planning permission, your outline planning permission with, with no master planning done at all at that stage. Right, okay. Certainly the local plan could could incorporate master planning as part of the local plan itself. In the white paper, there is an explicit proposal um, that as part of these um, outline consents, uh, there would be a mandatory condition for master planning. So either in the plan or as a mandatory condition through in the outline consent. So I think we should we move on to the next yes. topic? Because I think time is... Um... Yes, time is ticking. Should we talk about... Um, well, let's have a brief word about the infrastructure levy, um, sure. briefly, and then we do need to have a, uh, cover the building... Uh, uh, yeah, and it would be, it's important, if you don't mind me saying, that we do find a few a little bit of time for building yeah. beautiful. Yeah. It's a very, very important theme okay. of the process. So in relation to infrastructure, um, SIL out, Section 106 planning obligations out, uh, a new system of um, wait for this wonderful new wonderful new um, badge infrastructure levy. Um, a new um, is a tax as we can see it will be charged on the final value of the scheme or an assessment of it, um, and it will come in above a certain threshold. It will be levied at the point of occupation. The rate or rates would be set nationally. These are all the proposals. Would be collected and spent locally. And there would be far greater flexibility given, far more freedom given to local authorities to spend uh, the money that's raised in this way. Local authorities will be able to borrow against their infrastructure levy revenue. Um, and very, very importantly, as part of the infrastructure proposals, um, uh, there would be a system in which affordable housing could be provided, in effect bought, but provided as an in-kind um, way of paying your infrastructure levy and the whole idea and we spent a lot of time discussing this and, and um, I personally think it's a very very interesting idea indeed the idea of actually saying well within this tax you can pay some of this tax or even most of it <laughs> or a lot of it you can pay this by actually providing affordable housing is I think a pretty ingenious way of going about things because obviously as we know the current restrictions on on SIL, on the one hand, and the role of Section 106 planning obligation to the affordable housing on the other. So the idea is to have this, again, very simple, much simplified system. Um, and this was seen as, this whole set of the proposals is seen as a way of really getting on in the system um, so that there aren't endless delays and going around in circles with negotiations about 106 planning obligations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's an easy, easy, easy and easy out way to work out what your commitment is because there will be a nationally set rate or rates for the tax that would need to be paid, the infrastructure levy that would need to be paid. Everyone would know what they're dealing with and that money would be spent locally by local authorities on required infrastructure, on affordable housing and so on. So that's a very brief overview, but I know that time for your, the format of your programme, your show is, is, is running out. So I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> That's, can I just encourage any viewers who haven't seen our episode with Nigel Jones on viability and planning, which we had a couple of months ago, please do check it out on our website because we had a rather interesting discussion then about why don't we call a spade a spade and let's have a tax rather than something that everyone's desperate not to categorise as a tax uh, and that would be more simple and more straightforward and, and some of what you were saying Chris and what the white paper says has, has echoes of that uh, which uh, is yeah. good. Let's I mean, move on to building. My description of it as a, as a tax, but it, yeah. you know, it is. It, 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 it is, and the white paper is fairly, fairly naked about that. The um, levy, 
levied on the on value. So yeah, let, let, let's um, let's crack on with um, building beautiful because I think we have got time for um, some discussion. That I think I know Chris has got a plane to catch and Sasha's got to got to cycle. Um, goodness knows how many miles. But uh, building building beautiful is seems to be probably the second most significant thing in the paper yeah. after plan reform and obviously there's a synergy between the two so so what's all that about and the thinking on behind that okay well we're very very keen indeed it's a very very important theme of our discussions and indeed of the white paper as it's as it's come come out now to ensure that people can have for example homes that they can be proud to live in you know good to look at have got the right standards um, access to space, open space. Um, so the idea here is that there should be national model design codes, locally set design codes and guides. Um, as I mentioned earlier on in the growth areas, the outline planning permissions by condition would have a master planning and site specific design codes requirements. And there would be um, permissive development rights for pattern book development or for development which accords with the codes and the standards which have been set nationally and locally. So the whole idea is for the local people to be given a very real role locally in setting um, the pattern book developments that they would consider to be appropriate for the area in which they live. And there's even talk in the white paper about being able to do this at the level of a street, of a single street. Yeah. Um, and these, the whole idea here is to try to ensure um, that there are nationally and locally set standards for everything that counts about, primarily about housing, obviously, um, so that we can end up with a system where we're not building the slums of the future, where we are actually, if anything, building uh, what may very well be protected areas, which are seen as being remarkable for their achievements in the future. So. Building Beautiful is a very, very important part of the, of the proposals. And in brief overview, there are, very, there are various ways which are woven throughout the white paper to try to ensure that we can achieve that. Um, and as I say, the incentive of actually having a set of national and local standards and codes and pattern books, which would lead to permitted development rights is a very, very big incentive indeed to encourage people to actually um, to build beautiful, to build something which is worth having. Uh, Paint Devil's Advocate, because um, I mean, who, who doesn't want to build, build beautiful? I mean, it sounds like a great idea. Plain Devil's Advocate, might it be said uh, on the other side that to, to, to meet the housing crisis, we need the likes of Barrett and Persimmon to churn out 16, 17,000 year and uh, the necessary cost of that is a degree of generic design on their part because otherwise they're simply not going to get those volumes mm -hmm. and that this might hold back um, those sorts of rates of delivery nationwide. Is the, is the validity of that argument do you think? Well there would be nationally set standards and codes as well as locally set standards and codes. Um, I personally would see our national house builders as being very, very able indeed to adapt to these new ideas and to the new system. Um, and remember that the whole process would be a process in which everyone would be engaged. So mm. one would hope and expect that out of this system would come perfectly sensible and achievable, beautiful, good quality designs, particularly for, for new homes. So I would see the industry as being perfectly capable of being able to adapt to this new system. 
What about radical new designs? What about something, say, a, a shard? I mean, you, you got permission for the shard. Yeah. So, you know, you, you can't really kind of um, yeah. pre-bake that, can you? So how, how does radical come, come, to, come into so It's a very, very important part of the proposals that obviously not everything can be planned for in a local plan, you know, whatever that, how the local plan is. And we baked into this, you know, one would always be able to bring forward something which doesn't fit with the local plan or a design which is not in one of these pattern books. And one would make one's case for it, just as one does today. Um, today you're faced with, what, 100 policies in a local plan, which, you know, you have to surmount in order to get there. Uh, in the future, you'll be faced with, in effect, a test under which you would have to make a very good case for doing whatever it is that you want to do, which hasn't been foreseen in the in the local plan or in these pattern books and so on. Sasha, so, you're very quiet, doubtless, because you must be absolutely cream-crackered after cycling across the, the whole of the country. Um, I'm half wondering whether you actually are still cycling now and you've just got hurt. I'll tell you, when people ask me the hardest thing to do it, it's keeping your calorie count up, and I haven't had breakfast yet, so my blood sugar's about minus 400. But I did want to say, I'm going to do something which all Kit Kat's best witnesses do. I'm not going to ask a question. I'm going to give evidence to say my, my impression overall is that the document is excellent. I think it's... I, 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 I really do. I, 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 that's my view. I, having read it for the first time last night, I think it's impressive. So, uh, well done to KitKat. I wanted to pass right. off my congratulations. I think it is very easy very, very to criticise. It's much more difficult to be constructive and look at things mm. constructively. Mm. And I'm sure through the consultation responses, there will be refinements, variations, amendments. Mm. But as a first stab on something of this magnitude, it's impressive. Well, um, thank you very much indeed. And as I say, I mean, I, haven't, I wasn't aware of the convention that applies in, in government that all the civil servants who are involved in this can't be name-checked. So the experts um, have been name-checked, and I'm very, very grateful uh, to the government for doing that, obviously. But all the civil servants who played a huge role in this um, can't be name-checked. Um, to me, that's a great shame because they really, really do deserve, um, you know, for their role to be known about. But no, I'm, I'm sure that there'll be a lot of people uh, who are very, very grateful to you, Sasha, for saying that. Thank you very much indeed. Um, There's just one final, one final thing. I know that you know, your show you know, really must come to an end in a, in a few moments' time, but in a little while's time. But uh, finally, in relation, in relation to planning applications, um, we have proposed a system in which much less material would be required in order to um, get your planning application in and validated. Um, and... There would be page limits, for example, on the planning statement, which would become critically important documents uh, in the new system. Um, there would be much more dedication to planning officers for, um, for applications which um, fit in with the local plan. So much more dedication to planning officers to make the decisions. Um, there's, um, there are suggestions to explore um, the idea of a planning permission being granted automatically if it's if it's not if the application isn't determined within the requisite uh, specified period of time um, there are ideas and proposals uh, for the automatic um, rebase of the planning application fee if you're successful on an appeal and something which is very very close to my heart and which i'm very very pleased to see in the white paper um, is a proposal and there'll be a separate consultation on this in the autumn 
a, a proposal for um, simplification of the environmental impact assessment process because again EIA as far as I'm concerned it's my own personal view has become so obsessed with process and um, really 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 has left um, the public behind in terms of being able to find an accessible way of getting to good outcomes in terms of environmental issues so I'm very very pleased indeed and Know, very proud that that's that that's in the white paper this idea that we are going to look again in environmental impact assessment to make sure that we can actually have an effective way of looking at environmental consequences none of us in the working party none of the civil servants involved were in any way interested in some dumbing down uh, looking at environmental issues none of us were trying to sort of get away from environmental consequences we just want to try to find a way in which environmental consequences are properly assessed in an easily accessible manner that we can all understand and we can all have a proper debate about. Thanks. So that's, that's, um, that's a summary of the key points in the white paper. One, one last point, um, a lot of um, planning consultants in particular you know, have been in touch with me directly and um, following following this show and, uh, uh, about the, the white paper. And, uh, there's obviously a natural concern um, in some quarters at a time when um, jobs are under pressure already because of the <laughs> pandemic. Um, you know, are, are, are they all going to be put out of a business? It strikes me that from what you're saying, actually, that um, there's going to be a lot of adaptation to a brave new world. There's still a lot of a scope for persuasion, which is ultimately an, an analysis and persuasion, which is what the consultants do. It's what we all do. And so we're going to have to change our game, up our game. But um, it, Chris, Chris isn't going to fulfil his destiny, destiny of uh, being LinkedIn's global director of marketing just yet. I would say a couple of points. Can I just throw, throw yeah. in one, one point, um, Chris? Because I, I completely associate myself with my inbox has been very similar to Charlie's inbox, I suspect, about people being worried about the future and is this the right time in terms of the reforms. Mm. A lot of what you've said this morning actually provides a lot more reassurance than I had reading this document. Mm. Um, so a lot of the points that you were explaining in terms of local plans, I wish, frankly, there could be more explanation of, of that sort of an approach um, than, than is perhaps just from the, the, the hard words of the, the paper itself. So I associate myself with, with what Sasha said, but in a more guarded way, because I'm reassured by listening to you rather than necessarily reading the document. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably because I... I they always get fearful when they think change. I mean, I, yeah. I think it's a national characteristic that we do not do change terribly well. Yeah. We've yeah. just got to be a little braver and bolder. Yeah. I, I agree. So in answer to the various points, I mean, first of all, one thing that I very, very much had to um, discipline myself in this process was, you know, this is an opportunity to be involved in trying to change the planning system for the better. You know, this is not an opportunity to treat myself as a, a protected species, if you like, <laughs> and ensure that it was impossible to do anything to this protected species. So the public interest was very, very important indeed through all of this. Now, obviously, all of us here, lawyers, all of our friends, colleagues and associates in the planning industry, consultants, local authority officers, etc., etc. I mean, everyone's going to be concerned as to whether or not, you know, they're going to be out of a job, they're going to have less to do. My own view, and I hold this genuinely and sincerely, is that we're all very, very, very good at adapting to new circumstances. I mean, I've been doing this job for a long time. There have been all sorts of reforms, reviews, tinkering around with the system, changes over time. 
And we've all had to adapt to whatever's become the new version of the system. And there's no doubt at all that people will be um, doing different things in the future to the things that they've got used to doing at the moment. But there will be plenty of things to be done by everyone. Um, the white paper isn't about ensuring that we've all got employment, but my own personal view is that there will be lots and lots and lots of things for all of us and everyone in the industry to be getting on with. We were just going to have to work in different ways, dealing with different things than the things that we've got used to. Uh, but the whole process of getting used to a new system in itself <laughs> will, be, will, be a, will be something which would be good for, for all of us, I think. Thanks, Kiko. That's a nice note to, to finish on. Um, thank you so much, um, Chris, for, for so your unique insight. It, it's been hugely, hugely uh, valuable. So really, really appreciate that. Particularly, it's very ungodly hour of seven thirty in the morning. Um, <laughs> doubtless, um, to to our dear viewers, uh, thank you for for watching this. Doubtless, we're going to return to the issues raised probably in several episodes of, of series two. We may even have bespoke episodes looking at individual elements of the proposals as they um, develop uh, back in our usual format and of course live streams in September. We really look forward to seeing you then. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of us. We don't have a drink to, to hold up, so cheers, there's an empty cup of coffee. <laughs> um, have a great rest of summer. We'll see you in September. Uh, and now uh, Sasha can get back to his, his, he's literally almost running to his bike already. And don't miss your flight. Bon voyage, take care, see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs>